Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If you have benefited from Theology in the Raw in any way, there's three ways you can support the show. Number one, you can leave a review uh, down below. Number two, you can share this episode or other episodes like it. And number three, you can support us through patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. All the info is in the show notes. My guest today is the one and only Dr. Leonard Sweet. Uh, Dr. Sweet is an American theologian, semioetician, church historian, pastor, author, currently serves as the E. Stanley Jones Professor Emeritus at Drew Theological School at Drew University, and also he supervises doctoral students at several other institutions. He's the author of over 70 books. It's not a typo or a speako. It is uh, actually 7D, 7-0 books, more than, and over, um, I mean, thousands of articles, he's published sermons. He kind of... He does a lot. This dude is a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, and I'm super excited for you to get to know him. Please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Dr. Leonard Sweet. All right, I'm here with Len Sweet, uh, who should need no introduction, but if you need a little blurb on uh, who Len is, you can see the show notes. But Len, why don't, why don't I hear from, let's hear from you, like, to talk to us about your, your journey. I mean, I feel like you've lived like four or five uh, <laughs> lives already with all the stuff you've done, so I, I'm sure there'll be a lot of, uh, a lot of different directions we can go, but how, how did you get into ministry and academia, theology? Well, I come out of a uh, Pilgrim Holiness background. My mother was a preacher. She was ordained in the Pilgrim Holiness Church and then the Free Methodist Church, um, both of whom defrocked her for various reasons. And uh, so then at nine years of age, I became a Methodist because they'll take anybody. And and um, <laughs> so I've been a Methodist ever since. Um, but yeah, so I'm a PK, but the preacher in my household is my mother. Very strict. I mean, she was brought up by charges for worldliness because she accepted a wedding ring from my my free Methodist father, who was the liberal. Uh, So I come out of a very, I wrote a whole book on this called Mother Tongue, (laughs) what it's like to grow up as a PK with your mother, the preacher, and uh, kind of what it is to grow up in this kind of kind of holiness background. There's there's Pentecostal holiness. We were holiness, borderline Pentecostal. We were Pentecostal in every way except the tongues thing. So um, yeah, camp meeting kid. You ever go to camp meetings? I, I've been to summer camp. Is that the same thing? Is that? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> no I, I grew up West Coast, camp. non-denominational, so okay. uh, anything yeah, with any kind so, of tradition, uh, I'm, I'm familiar yeah. with. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, these camp meetings were a phenomenon. It was really a form of male evangelism, but that's a whole other, it's a whole <laughs> other story. Um, yeah, in many ways, Promise Keepers was a um, kind of a postmodern attempt at camp meetings. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, meetings. Okay. But at any rate, yeah. So I come out, that's my background. Then I had a deconversion at 17. I, I became a, a raging atheist. And my early years of college, I was in a, my Marxist phase and, mm. and studied under some Marxist professors and, and um, just wanted nothing to do with Christianity. Um, and that lasted for uh, five, six years. And then, then I had a real. Um, it was a. It was called liminality by Victor Turner, who talks about sometimes what keeps a river clean and pure is that part of the river goes out and it forms wetlands and turns into a swamp. But when that those wetlands, the water from those wetlands and those swamps return to the river because wetlands are really purifiers. They get rid of all the toxins, and that's why wetlands are preserved so much because that's what keeps the water pure. And so I went to this very swampy period of my life, very um, my liminal period, I call it. But when I came back to Christianity, I came back a real, a uh, real convert and um, <laughs> real passionate about about faith and Jesus. So that's where I've been ever since. Um, how'd you, that how'd kind you, of a journey. How'd you get into theology and wanting to be an academic and a and a pastor? Mm-hmm. Did that come shortly after your kind of reconversion? Or well, I've always done three things. I've always had of a uh, of Colgate Rochester Bexhill Crozer. Crozer was where Martin Luther King Jr. went, so I was actually a provost of his school for uh, for a few years. Then, at really early thirties, I became president of a seminary. But I always had I started two church plants, 
Um, so I've always been a committed committed to the church, um, been committed to academe and scholarship, mm-hmm. and um, and then just um, over and over through the years, it coalesced. Everything coalesced around this thing called semiotics. Yeah. And so, um, if I, I'm if anything. In academic circles, I'm a theosemitician. Uh, okay, I use semiotics of, of you got to you got to unpack that because I think about five percent of my audience knows what you just said. <laughs> yeah, well, Jesus, you know, Jesus had a favorite saying: "Red sky in morning, sailors take morning; red sky at night, sailors delight." And then he went on to say, "You know how to read the signs of the sky. I want you to know how to read the signs of the times." And the Greek word for sign is the word we get semiotics from, S-E-M-E-I-O-N, and then we get semiotics. So it's the ability to read signs. Uh, In secular terms, they're sometimes called symbologists. Um, Dan Brown, his whole main character was a semiotician, you know, somebody's into reading of signs, but more in the past. I'm, I do signs of the past, but I also do signs of the present. So just what is, and the ultimate sign for me is Jesus. So the question is, what is Jesus up to in our world? And and then how can we join what he's already doing? So I'm a, that's why I'm a theosemiotician. I'm, I mean, Coca-Cola hires 50, basically semioticians. They have wow. 50, they call them cultural anthropologists or semioticians to, just to braille the culture and figure out what's going on out there in the in the world, uh, fifty of them. So, and you can get a PhD in semiotics in in, in Europe. M- many of them end up on Wall Street. Um, but um, but I offer three doctoral programs actually in semiotics: a PhD in semiotics, a DMIN in semiotics, and a Doctor of Theology and Ministry in semiotics. So, okay. where we started here in the U.S. actually offering doctoral programs in semiotics can you get it i i'm sorry i i would love for you to keep unpacking this because i again it's such an unfamiliar ca- i think it's more familiar for people than they realize it's the term that might be uh, the roadblock but like right. what are, can you give yeah. us some examples of things you have learned to see and unpack um by be, being a semi uh, theo semi semiotician i'm gonna butcher the wording yeah. Just semiotics. It's semiotics. Uh, yeah. Okay. It's, okay. It's, it's all about semiotics. Yeah. Well, I mean, what you're doing is you're connecting dots, basically. All right. So, for example, um, Paul and John and others interpret Jesus as the last Adam. Mm-hmm. Some you know, there's a language, the second Adam, but it's really the last Adam. He came to do what the first Adam couldn't do. And so to show us how to be fully human, you can't be human without the divine. So Jesus is divine and human at the same time. But came, but he came to, to bring us back into that garden relationship that we had been kicked out of. Mm-hmm. So that we, that once again, can live in that he walks with me, he talks with me relationship with God. Um, who's the first person that Jesus appears to after his post-resurrection appearance? After his post-resurrection, his first post-resurrection appearance is to Mary. Mm-hmm. Okay, and she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's what? Gardener. The gardener. Yeah, yeah. The world's oldest profession. What did God create Adam to do? Tend until the garden. Huh. That's our prime directive. So it's a semiotic flare, biblically that Jesus's mission is complete. We are back now in that garden relationship with God. Yeah. Just one little example. That, well, that's similar to, like, cause I, my, my PhD is in the New Testament, but is kind of a hermeneutical PhD. And one big thing we did as, you know, um, is, is try to connect those. It sounds very similar it, based on the worker like Richard Hayes, you know, where you, pick up on allusions and echoes and short little snippets in the New Testament. Hermeneutics is very focused on the text. Yes, yes. Semiotics is focused on the story. Ah. So it doesn't, it doesn't read the Bible as a text and it doesn't do that kind of textual criticism and right. all that kind of higher critical stuff. I mean, it knows how to do it, but it's focused on the story okay. and treating the Bible, as, at least my form of semiotics, as one story. Sure. From Genesis to the maps, I say, you know, 
It's one story. And okay. so you, you treated it and you, so you do the semiotics of the, of the story. Um, so that, that's the, yeah. that's the basic difference between hermeneutics. It's a, it's a te- framework for interpreting the text. Okay, what Semiotics if, is all about how do you read the story? What about this one? Because this, this is one that it isn't a text, but it sounds closer, at least in between what you're talking about. Um, the, sorry, I'm battling a cold, so my head's a little cloudy, but the, um, the, the, tr- the transfiguration. Luke's telling of the transfiguration, and Luke loves, 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 loves to bring Israel's story into what Jesus is doing. And it says he was talking, only Luke has this word, he was talking to Peter about his, and most translations will say his departure, but the word is exodus, exodus or whatever it is. And you have the, the exodus, you know, as you know, I mean, it comes up throughout the Bible. Tapping into the exodus becomes kind of a paradigm of God's, God's redemption. And, um, and from that time on, you know, he's, he has his head, his face resolute to go to Jerusalem. So this exodus is like pointing to the cross. And the cross is like this new exodus, the new Moses bringing people out of ultimate slavery and so on and so forth. Um, and it's just one word, but it's Luke. We do know that Luke likes to do that sort of thing. Would that be, that sounds yeah, more like he's bringing that whole story to, into. Yeah. Where I would connect it there, that Exodus phrase is Passover. Okay. Uh-oh. And the whole, I mean, what, what do you do at the Passover? You spread blood on a, on doorposts, mm-hmm. you know, well, what is the cross? I mean, you spread blood on doorposts, and Jesus now is that Paschal Lamb. Um, so that is leading the people towards the Exodus. Okay. So yeah. So but it, so it's all part of yeah. But the the point is, you're interpreting it within the framework of the story. Okay. And we've been taught basically not to read the Bible as a story, mm-hmm. uh, or even to hear it, but to read it as these desiccated. Uh, dissected texts right. and passages, and not passages, verses. Yeah. So it's it's very. I'm a verse to verse as a semiotician. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I have. I'm trying to get rid of my own case of versitis, uh, <laughs> which is pretty pretty acute. Uh, do you think? Do you think the addition of verses uh, changed the way we read the Bible more <laughs> negative? Like in, in oh, like, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, oh, absolutely. I mean, we didn't. I mean, you. I'm glad for verses, which were done in the medieval period, by the way, because yeah. that's how you find things. Right. Don Scotus was working on it, as were others. But, but when John Calvin published that Geneva Bible, and you have now the the scriptures in the form of chapter and verse, that became our new default setting, yeah. and. I mean, I, I come out of this at five years of age. I was part of Bible Memory Association, BMA, and we had to memorize 12 Bible verses as a week. And we had a hearer. That's what she was called, a hearer that came in on Friday night. And we had to recite those 12 Bible verses and they were all themed. So one week it was the 12 Bible verses on hope. Another week it was 12 Bible verses on salvation. And but we had to recite them perfectly. So I've learned and memorized a lot of Bible verses. Uh-huh. But and then I, one day I woke up and realized I've never once memorized an entire Bible story. Huh. Huh. The Bible wasn't written in verses. We did that. The Bible's written in poems and and narratives and 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 you know dramas and and, and music and all that stuff. So letters and so yeah. Yeah. I think it is a that's that has really I think affected negatively um, the 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 way in which we live our faith yeah well it makes the bible feel like almost like a dictionary like there's you look up the entry chapter romans 8 28 and it's it feels very flat and mechanical it doesn't feel like it's an, an unfolding yeah. narrative you know? and it's we, it's without a context it's yeah. contextless so um i mean i just do this little exercise it's fun to do when I'm speaking, I just sometimes I'll say, how many of you can recite John 3.16? Well, everybody gets confident. You know, they all, you know, John 3.16, you know. So they recite it in unison from the same translation. It's amazing. I don't know how it happens, but I say, okay, that's really good. Now, now let's do John 3.15. Dead silence. silence. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I'll go, okay, John, 317, there'll be maybe about 20% that can do 317, you know. I say, okay, what's the story? Yeah. What's the story that this is in? And then maybe, you know, one or two will, has something to do with, with Nicodemus. Well, yeah, well, what's, what does it have to do with, you know, so we are, so this, it's hard to, you, you build an identity, Preston, on narrative. You you don't build an identity on you can't build it on verses you can't and you can't build it on values you can't build it on virtues you can't build it on a worldview either a a an identity that's why Christians have where's their identity they have no identity because their identity is built on a story and we are not teaching the story we're teaching these little principles or apps or verses or whatever well that's that's. That's very Jewish, right? I mean, that's that's why you have the Jewish calendar remembering, remembering the story again, the Passover, the story of the Exodus, and um, various you know incidences. And that's why of, there is million Jews in the whole world. Hmm. That's it. But you look at the percent of Nobel prizes, the percent of yeah. of uh, Pulitzer prizes that goes to this statistically insignificant percentage of the world's population. And partly it's reason that by the age of 12, every Jewish child, now they may be gone to be observant or atheist, it doesn't matter, but what binds together a, a Jewish child forever is the story. They are bound with that identity of the story. So their teenage years, they can spend being creative and innovative and going off on all these things. But our kids, I got to find myself. I got to I got to build myself from scratch. Who am I? I don't know who I am. Where am I? And and so yeah. we, you know, we get celebrity culture in here and we get all sorts of things in here. And so our, our kids, you know how hard it is to build an identity from scratch? Every Jewish child, from the moment they are born, they have a place at the table and they have an identity from the story. Huh. Exactly. Do you do you find that that quest for identity today is is more chaotic than it has been before? I mean, with social media and pandemics and everything, or is it? Do you feel like it's always been that way? No, I think it's no. And, and the idea that you build a self from scratch, yeah, that you build an identity for yourself from scratch, yeah, is really new. I mean. <laughs> It's really it's really new in history. So where'd that come from? Yeah, you, you like what? Well, the concept of the individual is relatively. I mean, it's only kind of, what five hundred years old, six hundred years old. The concept that I'm in here, you're out there, and I I can decide who I am and who I want to be, and I don't have to live out of a tradition or out of a heritage or mm. live out of a sense of ancestry. Um, yeah, yeah. I the big issue with my with my new, my grandchildren, they, what do we call you? What, what do you want our, your grandchildren to call you? I go, ancestor. <laughs> I want to be known as ancestor. <laughs> I want them to call me ancestor. <laughs> oh, we can't do that. I say, well, here's another one. How, call me ancient of days then. Have the, have the grandchildren call me ancient, ancient of, of days. days. <laughs> I told but my the kids. sense is you're living out, you're living out of a tradition, out yeah. of a heritage. And you you will shape your own, that heritage in your yourself, and you will take it in new directions. But you aren't born from scratch. Right. I, I love in, in in American culture when you're born, you get a number. It's called Social Security number, and that follows you for life, and that defines you. I mean, if there's one thing you don't want to lose, or you don't you don't want to lose your your Social Security number. A number. By the way, how in the world? I just got my booster shot. Okay. Yeah. You know that little card? It's this little tiny thing. It's paper. <laughs> no. And I'm going, without that card, though, I can't go anywhere. Can I get a replacement for that card? Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> I, is anybody wondering how many people are going to lose that card? And then they're going to, where, where do you go live then? I mean, where do you, where do you, how do you eat? You can't go anywhere now without that proving that you've been yeah. <laughs> you know, vaccinated. It's just crazy. So, but the... Uh, in Korea, when you're born, you don't get a number. You get added to the family tree. Huh. So there's a literal family tree. Now they they may have changed, they may have added to it the number by now because everybody's, you know, numbering everything. But the the up until recently, when you were born, it wasn't you got a number. 
the the his, the historical record, the government record, was your name was added to a family tree at a certain branch. In other words, from the very beginning of your life, you were defined in terms of your relationships. Hmm. Hmm. Now we're only defined in terms of our numbers. Yeah, and that's that's I'm trying to get back to the relationship, understanding yeah. of identity, the relationship to a story. Carl, Carl Truman wrote a book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, that traces a lot of this back, really a couple hundred years, kind of some key thinkers that were kind of the building blocks for this, this place where we're at now, where we can wake up one day, stare in the mirror and say, who, who am I? Like, who do I want to be? Like, we're going to determine our own identity and any kind of like authority outside of our individual self that tells us who we are is just profoundly offensive, you know, um, whereas in, in throughout yeah. history, it's never been that way no yeah. yeah yeah and that's why i it's for me to put it in the the narrative context um who is the author of your story hmm. if every one of our lives is a story then who do you who's going to author it and um and whoever you get you allow to author it is your authority hmm. your author is your authority yeah. So if you're going to say, I'm going to author it just myself, then you are your own authority. Hmm. Um, I, I was recently uh, at a uh, baggage claim, and the person next to me could have been pink, Preston. I mean, she was had pink hair. She had pink luggage. <laughs> she had pink, the word pink over everything. I mean, obviously, she had turned over her life story to pink. I mean... So pink was her authority. Yeah. And, but, and I, all of a sudden I realized, no, everybody is turning over their story to somebody. Yeah. I mean, there's nobody that just says, okay, I'm going to, no, you, you, you outsource part of your story to this mm -hmm. celebrity or to this, uh, you just, you, nobody can totally make it up from scratch. You're always, mm -hmm. so who do you choose to be your author? Mm -hmm. And that is your authority. And that's where I say, Jesus is my authority. Yeah. My my author, the author of my story is not Len Sweet. I want the author of my story to be Jesus the Christ. Mm -hmm. And I, and he, he and I write chapters together. Um, oh, that's great. You, you know, there's a singer called Pink. I wonder if it was her. <laughs> there's a singer named Pink. Well, no, that's what I meant. She was. I, I thought she was a, a fan of Pink, but she may have been she may Pink. Have been yeah, pink. I, got I didn't girl. talk to her. <laughs> Yeah, but she she could have been. She was short and yeah. bubbly, what, and yeah, maybe. What was your uh? P you did your PhD at University of Rochester, in New York. Is that right? And what was that? What was your PhD work in? Yeah, it, well, I got my MDiv and PhD at the same time. They I enrolled in. I wasn't going to spend seven eight years getting a master's and a yeah. a doctorate. So I did. Neither school knew what I was doing. So it was kind of a. Um, it was a bad thing to do. Uh, so I just confessed my sin there. But so for a couple of years, I was taking 30 courses a semester. I mean, it was brutal. Wow. Um, but, but I got my MDiv and PhD and uh, together in four years. So I went to Colgate Rochester, Bexdale Crozer. Okay. And then, um, at the same time I was getting my PhD in history okay. and especially I got caught up in this is a place where there was a whole focus on African-American studies and the history of slavery and all that kind of stuff. So um, uh, I got caught up in that. So my, my dissertation was on black images of America. Really? And um, so I got caught up in that, uh, in that re-looking at um, the role of the African-American uh, contribution in American history. Can you, yeah, can you tell us a little more about that? Like, what, what did that look like? What are some key thinkers and con contributors? Well, there, there was, uh, there, there was um, uh, Stan Engerman. Yeah. Uh, actually, he, and, uh, he was a cleometrician that taught there. And um, he and his co-writer got a Pulitzer Prize for their book. Uh, Time on the Cross was the huh. was the title of it. And then um, Eugene Genovese wrote his Pulitzer Prize winning book, Roll Jordan Roll. He was a professor there. And then um, uh, uh, Herbert Gutman studied it from the 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 white blue collar working class and slave angle. And so I just got caught up in this real vortex of. Huh of studies of um, 
uh, the African American uh, presence in American uh, American history. So it was a fun time. Yeah. And yeah. Um, it, yeah, W. W. Norton uh, published uh, the dissertation. Okay. Um, yeah. Did you did you uh, did you engage with James Cone much, or is that a different? Was he in a different kind of area? Well, I was doing it from a cultural and historical perspective, and uh, Cone, it was more of a theologian. Right, okay. Yeah. Okay, okay. And so, um, yeah, but it, you know, I read his stuff, and partly King graduated from Colgate, uh, from Crozer. Right. So there was the King presence as well. Okay. So, uh, So you were living out of that territory. Some of my professors at Colgate-Rochester, when I was a student there, they also taught King. Wow. So you got King stories. So we were, oh my gosh. you know, we were one of King's professors. And this is one, his name was Kenneth Smith. We called him Snuffy Smith. He was sure that King got his whole ethical system from his classes. So his, <laughs> his, whole, his whole social ethic. Uh, what was King was like as a student? Did he stand out? Um, not that much. Yeah. Um, he, he was a, a, he was most noted for his speaking ability. Yeah. And, uh, and that, that was, uh, and the ability to kind of integrate, bring together various, uh, sources and put them into a, a yeah. spellbinding form. Um, yeah. Yeah. People don't sometimes realize that King, you know, he went on to get a PhD from Boston college in theology, which is pretty top notch school like an earned phd like just because you have the name doctor doesn't mean you went through a the rigor of a phd program let alone at a place like right. boston college now you know yeah. early on he was kind of sucked into the civil rights stuff but i mean he was primarily an egghead like just an amazing speaker obviously he's always had that but he was he was primarily a theo like a legit theologian you know yeah Which comes out in yeah, his what? sermons yeah he he only um he only taught one course in his lifetime, hmm. and um, it was a course, 1960, that he taught from his alma mater, Morehouse College. In fact, Benjamin Mays, the president there, called King and said, I really want exposure to our students. Um, I want you to come here, and we'll open up the whole student body to you, but I want you to teach a class. And King said, I'm too busy. And yeah. And uh, else <clears throat> said, we'll make it as easy for you as we possibly can. So so the, his course on social policy was the title of the course, huh. was open to the entire student body. You ready? Hmm. And nine students signed up. What? <laughs> and these nine students are the only people, and that's the only course he ever taught this one time. And of course, King wasn't a common name then. It was just, yeah. you know, he was just somebody that the president of Morehouse wanted to showcase what he thought was going to be a, a really future star. And and uh, so these nine students are the only people in the world that can say we studied with King. <laughs> he was my mentor. He was my professor. OK, <laughs> so it's an elite group. Yeah. You know? And they actually, a couple of them have died in the past couple of years, but they, they, they still get together periodically at, for a reunion, really? you know, to congratulate each other on the good sense they had <laughs> not to miss their moment. Yeah. You know, they, this is a magic moment and they seized it and now they can talk about, at the same time though, Preston, they gather together to talk about, you know, how they seized that moment and took study courses with King. Not one, he, he required papers, graded them, gave them back. Not one of them saved one of those papers. Oh, no. <laughs> Not one of them saved the curriculum, wow. the syllabus. Not one of them took a picture of them with King. Not one of them has any of the signatures that he could have, he generated on their papers and on their work or could have given. So, even though they seize the moment, they they miss the moment wow. yeah. um, because they had the magic of being able to say and didn't appreciate the significance of it while it was happening. Yeah. You know, and I think that's that's so much like, you know, the Emmaus Road story. Did not our hearts burn within yeah. us yeah. when, you know, <laughs> but you're in the midst of it. You don't realize here they were. Jesus was telling his own story real time to them yeah. on, a, on a walk. Yeah. And they, this is his story he's telling. 
and they missed it. And so I love that for me, it's a reminder. Don't miss your moment. You know, yeah. um, that's crazy. They still get to have the awareness that you're in that moment. Yeah. Um, Len, you've written 70, more than 70 books and over 1500 published sermons, other articles, academic, popular, all across the board. Are there any, let's just maybe stick with the 70 books. Uh, are there any top like two or three books that really stand out where you feel like, ah, this, like where you can, as an author say, this book represents so much, a huge piece of me, or, or even a book that maybe got the most attention that's, you know, just in the broader culture. Well, it wasn't the bestseller of all my books, but Soul Tsunami hit mm-hmm. kind of a, um, it was a kind of a magic moment. I just was having fun trying to do some semiotics, um, but it became um, it, it was published right at two thousand. Okay, and I don't know if it was the, the turning of the the new millennium or whatever, mm-hmm. but it became a a big uh, a big book. Um, okay. But I my precedent is I birth orphans. You know, <laughs> I mean, once. Once a book is published, um, I'm I'm done with it. Okay, you know. And in fact, I've got publishers have at, at Zondervan actually got. I had a five book deal with Zondervan, and they got so mad at me that they said they were going to reconsider whether they were going to do another book deal with me because I would never. I, the, what I'm supposed to do, I guess nobody ever told me this, but what I'm supposed to do is you write a book and then you talk about it. Yeah, but I write a book. And then I talk about what I'm working on now in the next book. So I never talk about the book I've just published. I don't want to talk about it. I want to talk about what I'm working on mm-hmm. and what's going to come out next. Mm-hmm. So it's it's um, I'm a little um, odd there. Um, yeah. One of my oddnesses. Well, you, um, you seem to have obviously just, a diverse range of interests. So I would imagine people wired that way. You spend some time in one interest and then you get kind of itchy feet to go on to something else. Um, I, I can resonate with that. Well, it's more like uh, I, I say I don't write books. I raise racehorses. <laughs> and um, I have a stable. And in that stable are various, you know, I, I, stallions, I would hope. And I'm, I'm feeding them every day. I'm grooming them every day. Some of them grow faster than others. Sometimes I take them out for a trot to see how they're going to play and see how they can run. Um, but then one of them, and I've, I've got probably like 10, 10 horses right now in my stable, um, the, that one of them kicks the door down and says, it's ready for me to, to race, ready for me to run. And so I just let it out, get it to the starting gate and yeah. go back to my stable. And I don't, I don't even check to see how it's doing. I, I, I have no idea how my books have sold, which one has sold the best. I just keep keep writing and just keep raising racehorses. How, how, do, you, how do you determine, do you go through a, a process to figure out what you're going to write on next? Is it just whatever is of interest or do you kind of look at the, the lay of the land, you know, what's been written out there on the topic and see a hole that needs to be filled or – yeah, and I try to. It, this is where again I, I run up against publishers. Yeah, the what people understand is that publishers want you to write on something that's already a bestseller, and you just take it and add your little thing to it. And I'm just the opposite. I look out there and say, okay, what is nobody talking about? Um, huh. Where is where is nobody interested? And in yet, where I think there's a huge need huh. for some something to be said. And so, um, so I don't do the, you know, whatever everybody's talking about, if they do talk about it, like my, I mean, I've written two anti-leadership books, basically, uh, summon to lead is one. They, they insisted on that title, even though it's an anti-leadership book, but the other was called, I am a follower where I critique the whole leadership paradigm. And, um, and I just, um, you know, take on that whole leadership fetish that the church has been in, um, which is all drawn from basically corporate culture and and uh, all that stuff. So I, I'm I'm kind of looking at what isn't being talked about. Yeah. What where do I feel? So there's a kind of prophetic edge, if you will. To mm-hmm. and that's part of semiotics. You're looking at the signs and saying, okay, you know, pe- people are headed in the wrong direction here, and how do, how do we help to correct it and yeah. and uh, push them in 
Can you unpack, in the right direction. Can you can you summarize your anti leadership book? That that's I think that would do well now because there is such a concern with that form of leadership. Um, but yeah, what what is it? What does it look like to write an anti leadership book? Well, I, I'm a lot, I'm usually about 10, 10 to twenty years too early. <laughs> So this is written about ten years ago, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think I think maybe that I should republish it or something uh, with a different title instead of "I am a follower." But um, but the leadership is a we've made it the identity itself, um, and leadership is not an identity; it's a function, hmm. and that's the distinction here: is that you exercise a function, and God summons us to the front of the lines. But a lot of time, Preston, I'm at the back of the lines learning with everybody else. I mean, I'm in the back row at seminars, learning like everybody else. Um, I don't see myself as a leader. I, I, I'm summoned to the front of the lines, huh. like I'm summoned now to talk to you. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times I'm listening to podcast. I'm, I'm at the back of the lines. I'm a follower, and I'm just following Jesus where he's leading me, and sometimes he calls me up front. But even then, I'm behind him. So he is the leader. And I am the first follower, if you will, or second follower, whatever. I'm in a line somewhere. But he is the leader. And the Bible is not, I mean, Jesus didn't see himself as a leader. Are you kidding me? I mean, you know. So, and he he doesn't, he he calls us to be disciples, um, not to be leaders. The leadership is where we, what we got with corporate our corporate fetish and our corporate literature. And I read corporate literature and I have some of my doctoral students read some of it, but it's, it's there not to define who we are. Um, but to, um, to, to help us exercise a function when, when Jesus calls us to the front of the lines. What what did that, what did that book arise from? Like, was it something you were seeing? I mean, so 10 years ago, were you seeing, this leadership fetish in the church becoming a, a, a big problem or was there some kind of cultural? Yeah, it was, it, 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 I went to a catalyst. I, I spoke at catalyst a couple times and I went to catalyst and, <laughs> and, um, do you know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah, catalyst, yeah, yeah, the yeah. big, yeah. okay. The John Maxwell creation that kind of right. he sold and whatever. I, uh, and I, I was there and I, I'm, and it was like you had, like Malcolm Gladwell would come out, you know, and speak and everybody would gather around Malcolm Gladwell and worship Malcolm Gladwell. And he'd talk about leadership or whatever. And and I'm feeling this real, I'm getting really antsy here. And, and the whole, the the whole one that this one I attended, I have most vivid memories of. I did not hear Jesus mentioned at all. Wow. So you had a whole, the major Christian convention drawing quote, we used to call them churchmen, <laughs> you know, churchmanship. Now it's leadership. But drawing these people who are supposed to be all about the church um, and serving the church, um, I, I'm not hearing Jesus. And so I just got really convicted and, and mm-hmm. just got this book out really quick called I'm a Follower. Um, yeah. And, um, and just kind of um, called the church to what its true mission is, um, be thou, all this vision language, you know, be thou my vision, O Lord of my life. We got enough vision, we can handle it. Jesus is our vision. You know, yeah. we, well, I got to, you got, what's your vision, sweet? You got to come up with your own vision. No, I, I got all the vision I can handle. Jesus is my vision. I'm just following him. That's why I do. I read where he is, what's he up to, and I'm trying to find ways to, to join him in what he's already doing. And so. How do you get around, I mean, in our culture, I, well, not just our culture. I think of most cultures. Like when you have a bunch of people show up on a Sunday morning and you have one person on a stage speaking to, I mean, f- literally down to, not, not, you know, it's just he's up on the stage um, and he's the authoritative voice or she's the authoritative Isn't that system itself going to perpetuate that leadership fetish? Like, do you, do you think there's something intrinsically problematic with the system of that that is going to keep yes, this I do. problem I think, in place? Yes, I do. I think one of the, one of the worst moments um, that the church made was in the fourth century. We had to decide. We were all meeting at homes around tables. Yeah. Everything is at homes around tables. This is the Jewish model. And Christians continued this Jewish model. And that's where we worship, at homes around tables. 
And there came a time when the tables got getting bigger, the homes got getting bigger, because so where do we go? And so we adopted the Basilica model, mm -hmm. which is the legal model, which is the the court model, if you will. So you have rows of people and then you have an upfront. Um, and so when the table became a decoration, not a um, definition of who you are, um, mm -hmm. I think that was one of the worst mistakes we made. Um, yeah. And um, so the so I'm all about bringing back the table in as many ways as you possibly can. Um, mm -hmm. And it's all about the table and what happens around the table. And Jesus, that's where he taught. He didn't he didn't speak up front. He taught around tables. He taught most of his teachings was with meals. Jesus is a foodie. He's eating constantly. I mean, you have Jesus around, you better have some food. <laughs> you know, Revelation 320, I stand at the door and knock. And if you will open it, I'll enter. But you better yeah. have some food for me. Yeah, I'll yeah. enter and eat with you. You know. <laughs> you don't know the name Chris Venon, do you? He's a South African church planner in, in the U.S. He's not. He's not well known. He's kind of a behind the scenes kind of person. But he his whole he's been in the states for I want to say twenty plus years, thirty plus years, and his whole ecclesiology begins with the table. Everything flows from the table. You begin with the table. Everything is an outgrowth of that. I mean, it sounds almost identical and what you're saying and he's 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 raising up a lot of church planters with that kind of mindset um i think you would really you guys would get along well i think <laughs> um yeah do, do you think i wrote a whole book on this where i say to look at it's called from tablet to table but um to look at the bible as a table itself on huh. which we feast um but um the the real table which is increasingly missing in our homes yeah. and people aren't eating together around tables but that's but to look at the table as in some ways the tree of life huh. and and you have the language of the table you add leaves you have a you have the you know the stem of the table the the roots but that table is where discipleship needs to take form preston huh. uh even if worship goes someplace else um and that's that's i mean the synagogue wasn't where the most sacred rituals were performed in Judaism after the fall, after the destruction of the temple in 70, it's the home around the table. That's where the most sacred rituals are. And so the ritual of table time and table talk, the Protestant Reformation was formed around a table, the Tishraden, um, Luther's table, um, which they've desecrated, by the way, if you've gone to Wittenberg, they just cut it in half. And so you could, you could walk through the room. And I, I was just so, so devastated when I saw that, but, so you got this little stumpy short table, <laughs> what the real table was, a Reformation table that was forged. The Reformation was built around that table. But yeah, the, to see the table as, um, as the primary symbol of uh, where we encounter Christ um, is, yeah. Well, you have that semiotic uh, or symbol all throughout Scripture, one of the most Interesting ones to me is I think it's Exodus twenty four where um, oh now I'm blanking on who's there is it Moses maybe uh, was Aaron there I don't know they, they have it they had they they it says they're like in the presence of God and they sat and ate and drank or something like that like they have a meal which symbolizes this kind of like fellowship with God in His presence and but you see that throughout Scripture meals are very theological aren't they in Scripture I mean absolutely yeah and and. Um and the, the whole role of food, the symbology of food, I mean, we've totally missed that. I mean, um, what was the golden, what was the rod of Aaron? We talk about Aaron's rod. Well, no, it wasn't a rod. It turned into an almond branch. Oh, yeah. You know, what was the golden lampstand? No, it wasn't a lampstand. It was an almond tree. Huh. I mean, let's get it right. So the whole, I mean, that's why I'm convinced the tree of life was an almond tree. I think the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a fig tree. But I think the tree of life was an almond tree. And the symbology of the almond and what the almond and the mandorla in in in, in Italian, Latin, I mean, and and uh, the, the whole, what was, what, what was Mount Sinai? It was the, the mountain of almonds. I mean, it was... So, you, so the, the food imagery, we're biggest, one of the biggest things I have in many circles are food studies. We need a food studies of the scriptures where people can take seriously 
Uh, pomegranates. What was the significance of pomegranates? Why does every priest have pomegranates on uh, the high priest have on the um, on the, the fringes? I mean, so the the role, the symbology of food itself. I mean, who's the one that killed the first animal? God. God. Yeah. To provide skin for Adam and Eve. I mean, so the the eating now, eating of animals. And how we survived before we didn't have to worry about that because we were, you know, food was just enjoyment and we were we were made to be to live forever. But yeah. when we eat of that tree, we die. And yeah. and so God sets the first table, if you will. Um, yeah. So it's just huh. huge. Huh. And, and we've kind of lost that a bit in our church ecclesiological ecclesi ecclesiological rhythms really um the significance of the table it's hard in a big setting right i mean if 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 the if 80 percent, 90 percent of your sort of a ecclesiological rhythm is coming and sitting and learning or if you have a preacher coming and standing and speaking it's hard to squeeze in the table in that kind of big big setting right what, what's how, how would you if you had a, a pastor of a church of a thousand said hey i love what you're saying what do i do what would you tell him him or her well, you, you replace your pews with tables, first of all. <laughs> um, you to replace your water, your um, your ushers with waiters. I mean, there, there's all sorts of, yeah. And I'm much more participatory in my preaching, so I'm out there in the middle working, interacting with the crowd. It's not the sage on the stage huh. it's so much as it is I am. It, it's much more, um, you know, here's the mic. It's karaoke time. It's, it's time when I'm going to, what do you think about this? And here, John. You know, you, you tell us what you think and Mary tells what. You, so you're more of an orchestral conductor uh, of the people's uh, worship than you are. Um, I'm the I'm the big, big boss with the hot sauce. <laughs> so you walk around and, and talk to people that freak people out. It can. <laughs> like, I just gave the list of that. I don't <laughs> but it's. No, but but here's what people. This is this is the this is the why do you go to why do kids go to a concert today, Preston? They do not go to sit there and listen to a performance. The high and holy moment in every concert is when this person on stage does this, huh. takes the mic from himself or herself, and turns it to the crowd, and the quote performer becomes the mic stand for the people and they are singing that song and in many ways then it just reverse roles the performers there to listen to the people and and produce their singing and their their song and that's the new role of the preacher um is to move from this to this do you have weird moments when you ask somebody what they think and they come up with some bizarre thing that's like oh my gosh i gotta do i just let this go or (laughs) no you know i have two uh and some people really want to take the mic and make a, yeah. you know, make a statement sometimes. I know and that person, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but some people will come up with the weirdest things, you know. <laughs> like, I mean, I actually had one um, person um, who, uh, in the midst of that, uh, just said, um, I he gave the mic to them, they want to say something, and they said, you know, you're the devil. <laughs> okay. So when you hit, when you, how do you handle something like that? And my usual way of handling it is, we'll say more. Okay. <laughs> so that's one of my, one of my key phrases. Either you may be right is one, or say more. And this person goes, well, as I, I was here, as I was driving here today, uh, to come and hear you. And, and by the way, you know, when I drive, I never have to stop for a. Um, a stoplight because I just point at it and it turns. So I never have to stop for a stoplight. But as I was driving here, you know, but as soon as this person announced that they never had to stop for a stoplight, they just had to point their finger yeah. and it, it would change. Uh, <laughs> you know, she had said everything that she needed to say, you know, yeah. um, and she, people hang themselves, you know, yeah. but most of the time it's the energy and the energy of the air, I call it baking a souffle, you know, because you're, you're um, all that air, that conversation creates an experience, to, a collective experience that is really mm-hmm. rare and rich. And that's what can happen around the table, too. 
in Spanish cultures is called sobra mesa. Sobra mesa. And it means over the table. And you would dishonor any host in any kind of Mediterranean culture if when you got done eating, you got up from the table. Yeah. You the table the table had two parts. One was eating the food. But you can't talk when you're eating the food. You're enjoying the food. You're talking about how good the food is. You're discussing the food. But then there's the conversation after mm-hmm. the sobra mesa, hmm. the after the table conversation. And that's uh, that's where the real hmm. – and that can take place uh, for hours. Yeah. Um, when I first heard that word and the meaning, I, I went and tried to – get the URL for it, SoberMesa.com. It had already been gotten by a cigar company. They make cigars, Sobra Mesas, they're called, just for conversation after, around the table, after the meal. So my, you might appreciate this, my wife and I, we've always kind of had a hard time with traditional church small groups. I don't know why, it just oftentimes feels forced. I feel like maybe we've just been put in groups that just doesn't work right. I, I don't know why, but we just, after a while, we're kind of like, ah, I just can't tolerate another small group. So we just started throwing parties. So like yeah, right now, we, yeah. we every almost every week, a week, a couple of weeks, we'll just throw I love a, it. And a party with no agenda, no anything. It's like we we always right. try to serve like high quality, like appetizers, like kind of finger foods and high quality drinks. So like good wine, um, good whiskey, um, good beer or whatever, non-alcoholic drinks as well and stuff. But it's like – and there's no agenda. Like there's no like – all right, after we talk for 46 minutes, we're going to stop and go around and get our prayer. There's nothing. It just come come however long you want, leave whenever you want, whatever. Um, and it's amazing how many rich conversations. There might be 20, 30 people. And you know, people kind of tail off. And you'll, you'll see like pockets of people having conversations and stuff. We got a big um, world map on, on the wall. So several of our friends are missionaries. And we'll go to the map and talk about you know the work they're doing and stuff. And when, when there's no like pre-programmed agenda it's it's amazing how deep the conversations go and you feel we feel so filled at the end of that yeah yeah i love that i love that the only the only thing is you gotta uh if people said the same people keep coming back to the parties we have different people Um, i kind of a yeah we will just throw out a random invite to a bunch of people and okay yeah but there can be if if it becomes too ingrown then it's like for a for a new person, it's like walking into a room with everybody making out. You know, <laughs> you don't know where you fit in, yeah, and oh, you yeah, don't know yeah. where everybody's so friendly to one another that so there has to be an ethic of hospitality to sure. the stranger, and the stranger becomes the most important person. And and um, but I love that. Uh, hmm. I love that. That's Jesus. I mean, yeah. I love that party team exactly. Well, I, yeah. I think we have a. a, a we ha- I'm thinking of them right now, several, two or three people that are very outgoing. And if anybody comes in the door that they don't know, they will, hey, what's your name? I don't know you. Then, hey, come be, do you know, how, do you know people here? And yeah. it's, they almost serve yeah, as that kind great. of just natural like yeah. funnel. If there is, you know, uh, an introvert, because we have had some people over that don't know anybody except us. Um, and that can be kind of, ner- you know, especially if you're kind of introverted and you see a bunch of people and. We try to get age diversity. So if they if it's an older person and they see a bunch of younger people or whatever, they could be like, "Oh, what is this?" You know. Um, but we do have a few key people. That, again, we didn't plan it this way. It's just they just naturally like. That's great. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. Um, we'll That's see. so cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. There is a book called "The Art of Gathering." I really encourage you to read that. Huh. The it's art. called "The Art of Gathering." Oh, that's cool. Who's it by? Just trust me. Okay. Trust me, um, Pratha. I forget, but the art of gathering. The art of gathering. Okay, cool. We'll check it out. Hey, we only have a few more minutes, but we got to talk about your recent project, um, the Songs of Light. We talked a little bit offline about this, and I was just kind of mesmerized a little bit. Like, this is such an awesome idea. Can you tell us what this? Uh, it's a series, right? I mean, I think you're on your second or third volume right now. Um, can you tell us about what Songs of Light is? No, right. We're doing the fourth. Oh, four. Okay. Yeah, the yeah. fourth. Yeah. Yeah. But well, what it came as a result of um, my I, I lost my wife uh, a couple of years ago oh. to cancer, and so we had hospice in here. And I realized there was no resource um, that um, that I knew of where I could just sit down with her and read 
some meditations together. Um, and so I, I'm on a big oral kick. The faith comes by hearing. So the Bible was meant to be read out loud. You don't do silent reading. The, you don't have any evidence of silent reading of Scripture until the fourth century. So the Scriptures are meant to be spoken. to, And the vibrations that occur from the speaking of those words, I think, have power. Uh, Elon Musk, the three things of the future, frequency, vibration, energy, all of which are encompassed in speaking. So, um, I mean, Nicholas Tesla said that. Uh, I'm sorry, not Elon Musk. That was Tesla. Uh, but the so I, I realized I, I wanted we need we need a resource for somebody to sit down next to somebody in hospice care and just to read uh, some meditation, some memories, some encouragements, um, to bless over them with words of comfort and, and, um, and cheer. And so, um, these are meant to be read out loud by a caregiver to a person at end of life. And there's 33 of them. So it's a, it's a smaller book cause you can put it at an end table or a bedside, you can almost put it in your pocket, but there's 33 and they're designed to be as much of a blessing to the person doing the reading because they're the ones who are the caregiver primarily as the one who's receiving it. And so we have the first one is for end of life hospice. The other is for a critical condition. The second volume or could go either way. Um, the third one is for um, people who are dealing with suicidal thoughts hmm. and um, are having issues uh, related to taking their own life. And then the fourth one that we just finished is one on um, um, memory disorder, either. Uh, so we, this is all based on hymns. So basically we have 33 hymns because hymns bring people out, music brings people out, out uh, and reconnects them to reality. The last thing that does. And so there are these meditations on, on 33 um, most familiar, maybe some of the most familiar hymns and most loved hymns that uh, people in this state of memory decline and disorder can latch on to. Now we're going to do the next one on, on uh, Vine 5 on mental illness for people who are struggling with those kinds of issues. Um, the suicidal one was a very specific one, um, but with, with other kinds of um, paranoia and schizophrenia. And wow. so we're just going to keep going, going down the line. Wow, that's amazing. Um and how have the first, I guess, three been received? Do you get people that have been using this, these books? And yeah, well, it's so it's so recent. We haven't had, but we just had just this week our first order for two hundred okay. came in okay. from uh, a, um, a chaplaincy organization. The okay. the head of the organization read it and said, uh, "I got to give these to, to my people." So the next meeting, there's I guess there's two hundred at the meeting. So he just bought two hundred and said, "I'm going to give this free to everybody." Yeah. Uh, so. I'm hoping um, that it that I really feel a special anointing on this series, Preston. I, th I think there's a a real uh, need for it, and um, and the key is that it was they're designed and written to be read out loud. It's spoken out loud, so it's not something you read with your eyes; mm -hmm. you hear it with your ears, mm -hmm. and that's a whole different kind of writing for me. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I'm hoping that. That people enjoy it. And well, you have to pay attention useful. to phonetics and other things, right? I mean, because when you're writing, you don't Bingo. think about like, yeah, audible resonance or how things sound against each other, different words and stuff. That is, yeah. And I, I, yeah, the first, the, actually, there's a backstory here. The first volume, because um, I tell preachers when you write your sermons, you write them for your ear. Right. Okay. So I thought I had done that. And uh, we're, I'm working with somebody else, too, and I thought we had both done that. Um, so it was published. And so my, my first volume came in. You know, you get the first ones. And so um, I uh, started reading it out loud for the first time. And I immediately stopped the presses. <laughs> and I said I called it I had to resound them literally resound them Interesting. Um, yeah. because I had not done good enough. Huh. I had not done far enough. I really needed to redo it so that it was meant 
for the ear. So the so ever I redid that whole first volume. It's a whole new volume. So if you got some people actually ordered it quickly, and um, I just say if you if you got that first volume before I resounded it, it's a collector's item because <laughs> there are only just a couple published because I stopped it. Wow, that's crazy. Well, Len, I've taken you up to an hour here, so uh, man, I. We can keep going. There's a lot more to talk about, but thanks so much for giving an hour of your day to Theology and Iran. And, uh, it's really, been fun, Preston. Thank you. Yeah, really appreciate all your work and, and your, your voice and love this anti-leadership stuff. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while, and I'm sure my audience will too. Um, so people can find you at uh, LeonardSweet.com. Is that where you want to point people to? And I'm, I'm looking at your website now. It looks like you yeah, have. Yeah, that'd be good. Or, or I, do, uh, I do a YouTube channel where I just – I do semiotics of, of the lectionary every week. Okay. So I have about 30 minutes every week where I just say th- the semiotics of these these passages could be this, and you could use this, and Got it. this you might want to think about this. So okay. I do the semiotics of a passage. I've had 90, I think there's almost 100 there now, so 100 weeks of semiotics of, of the lectionary passages. If they just type in your name to YouTube, it'll take you to your channel? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Len. Appreciate you. All right, Preston, great being with you. You too. Bye. Yeah, blessings on you and your family. Thank you.